Great. So <clears throat> there's two topics that I want to treat this evening. One is a simple word, um, that being the word that showed up in chapter 6, verse 2, as sons of God, Elohim. It also shows up in Genesis 1, 1. Um, shows up lots of places, actually shows up thousands of places. So the word for Elohim um, in English is many different things. One word today. So, in broad strokes, when 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 Elohim is used in the uh, in connection with a plural verb or a plural adjective, um, it's translated differently from when it's used with a singular um, verb or a singular adjective. Um, in and of itself, it's 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 in the plural form, so it looks like. Um, it simply says gods, G-O-D-S. But that word, that noun, that appears to be plural, can sometimes be used um, with a singular verb uh, and can sometimes be modified by a singular adjective. Fortunately, most languages are more complex than English. In English, it doesn't even make sense. What do you mean a singular adjective or a plural adjective? But in sophisticated languages, they have plural and singular adjectives. Um, so in and of itself, at first glance, Elohim appears to be in the plural. But that's exactly the word that we see in Genesis 1.1, where the sacred word tells us what's, how to, what are the, what's the first phrase of the Bible. In the beginning, God created donuts, right? No. Um, in the beginning, Elohim created... That word, Elohim, is in conjunction with the verb created, which is singular, not plural. And so when it appears like that, it is understood to mean the God, you know, or at least God in, in a singular sense, not in the plural sense. When Elohim is, in, is used in conjunction with the plural verb, as is the case in 6.2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair, and they took to wife such of them as they chose. That verb is a plural verb, saw. And so, and so that word Elohim is, is rendered in the, in the plural. Now, it could be rendered as God's, or it's also rendered as, in this case, sons of God. Still in the plural. Um, what we're dealing with here then is 
a um, a word that in and of itself can refer to God, but but it, it it's always referring to a spiritual being. Um, and in and of itself, um, it even contains a word for God. El, El on its own can mean God. So if you flip to the pictures, they don't really, I don't know if you want to call them pictures. So what you're looking at there So these first two letters are added. Um, if you add further, that's the word Elohim. But that on and of itself, El, can mean God. And that ending right there, Im, um, is, is, a, is how it's made plural. So El on its own can mean God. Elim can mean gods. And then flip the page. Elo also can mean God. And the difference <clears throat> is just the one uh, penultimate letter between Elo and Elohim. Now, curiously enough, Elo is a cognate for the Arabic word for God, Allah. A similar sound. Not sure what, historically how the connection works, um, but very, very similar words for God. Some people can be easily confused and um, only read Elohim um, to be plural, but even the English language has something of a majestic plural, right? Where the the king a hundred years ago might have um, responded, you know, in the plural. You know, the king would say "we" instead of "I." Pope Francis. Pope Francis even used that once, not just old popes, but even the current pope has used the royal we in official, um, in official statements. Not too often, um, but early on he did once or twice. So when we have um, this plural, um, or seemingly plural Hebrew word translated, the translator has a lot of uh, has a um, lot of discernment to be doing. We will see it peak out once or twice, even when it's being used in reference to the one true God in the work of creation. When in chapter 
1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. It'd be easy when you're reading a sacred text or any kind of ancient text, when you see something that curious not to make much of it, we wouldn't really until a Christian reads that and says, oh, well, obviously that's, you know, the Trinity peeking out. But before Pentecost, no one would ever have been able to figure that out. So, um, so that's the grammar, right? When Elohim is used with a singular verb, it's translated as God, the one God. You know, we would capitalize that G. Used with a plural verb, God's plural. Or sons of God. Now, that's where we'll, we'll even see it in our, in our prayer life, especially in the Psalms, um, where there will be references to gods in the plural. You know, the Lord is greater than all gods. And that can be off-putting. How, how, do, we, how do we make sense of that? Um, because obviously, um, we believe that there are no other gods, right? We don't just simply believe that God, whom we know, God the Father, uh, is the creator of the universe, as opposed to other gods who, you know, didn't create anything. That's not what we believe. We believe that there's only one God, right? And that God created the universe. So what could it mean in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms that we continue to pray as Christians, when we see the word gods? It can be one of two things. And our, our instinct may be to assume that it's referring to, well, just false gods, you know, gods that don't exist. Pe- you know, deities, supposed deities that are worshipped, that are actually worshipped by people, but don't actually exist, right? That's the easiest way to understand it. And probably when we think of polytheism, that's probably what we're thinking is going on. You know, it's just made up, you know, the god with the elephant head and the god with you know, ten arms or, you know, whatever else. doesn't exist. Um, people made it up. Um, it's easy to think like that. But by the same token, um, um, Elohim, referring to spiritual beings in the plural, um, is also sometimes how we refer to angels. Right? Um, Elohim can also refer to, you know, judges and certain, you know, noble, noble human beings. So if we consider the distinct possibility that the false gods that are actually worshipped by, by people actually correspond to fallen angels who have managed to get people to worship them, then the word takes on even more significance. And polytheism actually takes on more intelligibility. It's still false, but it's not as though it's totally complete fiction, 
right? There, somebody, you know, prayed to that statue with the aardvark in the pose, and, and something actually happened, right? Was that their imagination? Or was that a fallen angel that actually got something to do something because that person managed to, you know, offer up the right, off, you know, gift to the, you know, aardvark statue, right? Um, it's always good to try to go the extra length to imagine why that other thing that looks silly or that other thing which is false might actually have some kind of internal logic or it might actually correspond to something that I don't, um, don't recognize or um, don't approve of. But still, it, on some level, it might, even, it might even make sense. So when, when, when in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, especially when we're praying, you know, the Lord is, you know, greater than all gods, well, it, that's a, it's actually a more meaningful statement when it's obviously saying, yes, the Lord is more powerful than all the angels combined. It makes less sense when we're saying God is more powerful than, you know, fictional creatures. That's true, but it seems kind of even silly to have to say that, right? Make any sense a little bit? New idea? Helpful? Maybe? All right, good. So the word Elohim has, um, has many, many layers. Um, and uh, so that idea of um, gods, um, then... Um, touches on another topic which did come up in conversation yesterday and that is well how do how do fallen angels make any impact on anything going on in the world how do they operate in what manner can they be visible in what manner can they have physical effect right so that's where we have some help coming from um from the fathers of the church. Um, so along those lines, what I'd like to convey to you is a, is a bibliography. Um, um, early fathers of the church, and then some um, works by, well, two works, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, yesterday, I mentioned to you St. Thomas Boston. And there's 76 homilies on the book of Genesis. You can buy that in two or three volumes. And St. Augustine and his work, um, The Literal Meaning of Genesis, you can buy that in two volumes. Um, uh, the Latin versions in other languages usually are available online. Um, there's actually a very good website called Omnia Documenta Catholica. It's only in Latin. Um, all the documents are in Latin. But it's probably the single largest cache of um, ancient documents that I found in one place for free. Um, uh, and like many things, if we don't speak Latin or don't read Latin, it's inaccessible to us, but, you know, 
most of St. Thomas Aquinas has not been translated out of Latin. So if we think we know St. Thomas because we've read him in English, we might be mistaken. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas is primarily a scripture scholar. He was a scripture professor. That's, that was his bread and butter. The Summa he wrote as, a, as an aid, as a handbook for theology students who were having trouble in their studies. It wasn't his, it's not something that he taught. It's not, some, you know, it's not a book that he published for his own um, you know, primary apostolate. Um, and a lot of his works on sacred scripture only are in Latin, have, have not been translated. Yeah. Right, and so translations are another you know, matter altogether, but some things just aren't even translated. So, um, but fortunately some things are, and what is translated by St. Thomas Aquinas, which helps us, is the Summa. Uh, there are some things that he wrote on Genesis in his commentary on the sentences of Peter Lombard. There are four sections in the Summa that um, pertain directly to what we're discussing. Um, in the first part of the Summa, the first treatise is on God himself and God's essence, existence, perfections. That's important, but it's all, you know, it's in the background uh, of these books of Genesis. Um, second, third, and fourth treatises are directly related to what we're talking about. I'll point out that fourth treatise, it's listed here, third because um, I didn't even mention the treatise on God. But the treatise on the work of the six days, questions 65 to 74 of the first part of the Summa. Um, obviously, that you know, refers to the six days of, um, yes, of creation. I was trying to think of something silly, and I couldn't. Six days of creation. Um, look further up into your bibliography on the first page, and you'll see twice an odd Greek word transliterated, um, hexameron. Homilies on the hexameron by Basil of Caesarea. Apologia in hexameron by Gregory of Nyssa. That is the word, oh, and then Ambrose, St. Ambrose, hexameron, paradise, can enable. That's the Greek word for a treatise on the six days of creation. So hexameron is just a, it's a new word, a new word to me as well. Um, here in the first part of the Summa, um, it's all spelled out a little more directly. Now, along those lines, there are two questions that are worth pointing out to you. One is question 51 of the first part. And the other is question 110 of the first part. Question 51 has to do with angels and bodies. Um, whether or not angels have bodies, the answer is no. Um, and the next question is whether angels can assume bodies, and the answer is yes. Um, question 110 has to do with um, angels having the ability to act on bodies. Um, can, a can a corporeal nature be governed by angels? Um, 
the second article asks the question whether corporeal matter obeys the mere will of an angel. Whether bodies obey the angels as regards motion, you know, local motion. Um, whether angels can work miracles. The answer to that is no. Because strictly speaking, only God works miracles. But angels can do amazing things. Right? So, let's consider that. Angels is created spirits don't have bodies, strictly speaking, or really in any manner of speaking. Um, but they can be visible. Now, is that visibility a function of an angel implanting an image in your imagination? Or is it a matter of, no, your eyes actually see something? And if your eyes actually see something, that means matter has been um, uh, been affected by um, an angel. And if that image is actually the image of a body, then we're going to even use the language that the angel assumes a body, you know, assumes a body to be visible. Um, we can read here uh, um, Article 2 whether angels assume bodies. And when you're reading the Summa, which might be new um, for a lot of us, there is a, there's a very um, simple and consistent way that they're written and, and can be read uh, intelligently. St. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa is summarizing all of theology. That's what Summa Theologia means, the summary of all theology, or the summary of theology. So in every question, in every article, he's taking those erroneous opinions that are popular or influential. Um, those are listed in objections, one, two, three, four, etc. And then at the bottom of the article, he replies to each of those objections. And then having replied to all of those objections, his Answer his conclusion is actually in the middle. So if you're speed reading the Summa, you're going to just look at said contra or on the contrary, and I answer that. The I answer that paragraph, that's where his summary is. If you're taking your time and reading it carefully, um, so if you have opened up, you know, pages two and three to article two, whether angels assume bodies, you would read objection one. And then you would read the reply to objection one. And then you would read objection two. And then the reply to objection two. Objection three. And then reply to objection three. But this time you're going to know what the answer is. And then you read, on the contrary, Augustine says, on the city of God, that angels appeared to Abraham under assumed bodies. I answer that. Some have maintained that the angels never assume bodies, but that all we read in sacred scripture of apparitions of angels happened only in prophetic vision that is according to imagination. But that is contrary to the intent of scripture. For whatever is beheld in imaginary vision is only in the beholder's imagination and consequently is not seen by everybody. 
Yet divine scripture from time to time introduces angels so apparent as to be seen commonly by all, just as the angels who appeared to Abraham were seen by him and by his whole family, by Lot and by the citizens of Sodom. In like manner, the angel who appeared to Tobias was seen by all present. From all this, it is clearly shown that such apparitions were beheld by bodily vision, you know, meaning by actual eyeballs, doing what eyeballs do, whereby the object seen exists outside the person beholding it and can accordingly be seen by all. Now, by such a vision, only a body can be beheld. Consequently, since the angels are not bodies, nor have they bodies naturally united with them, as is clear from what has been said, it follows that they sometimes assume bodies. So this, that's going to be the, the description of this operation, whereby angels actually are visible. But then we're not interested only in angels being visible. We're interested in angels actually moving things or you know doing things. So let's get to uh, question 110 towards the end of part one. This is in the, the fifth treatise. The, Which, um, or the sixth treatise on, um, on governance, on God's governance of things. Um, let's look at Article 3. It would seem that bodies do not obey the angels in local motion. From the local motion of natural bodies follows on their forms. The angels do not cause the forms of natural bodies. As stated above, therefore, neither can they cause in them local motion. Let's look at the reply. There are in bodies other local movements besides those which result from the forms. For instance, the ebb and flow of the sea does not follow from the substantial form of the water, but from the influence of the moon. And much more can local movements result from the power of spiritual substances. So movements aren't simply a matter of nature and form, but even, you know, actually from accidents, you know, from accidental um, uh, factors, not factors that pertain strictly from the... Um, the nature of the object itself. Object two, further the philosopher, which means who? Aristotle. The seminarian, right? I mean, Aristotle, <laughs> proves that local motion is the first of all movements. But the angels cannot cause other movements by a formal change of the matter, therefore, neither can they cause local motion. On the other hand, the angels, by causing local motion as the first motion, can thereby cause other movements, that is, by employing corporeal agents to produce these effects as a workman employs fire to soften them. Third objection, further, the corporeal members obey the concept of the soul as regards local movement, as having in themselves some principle of life. In natural bodies, however, there is not vital principle, therefore they do not obey the angels in local motion. Um, Angels aren't the cause of, just because something's not the cause of another thing having life doesn't mean it can't have an effect on that other object um, physically. The reply to the objection, the power of an angel is not so limited as is the power of the soul. Hence, the motive power of the soul is limited to the body united to it, which is vivified by it, and by which it can move other things. But an angel's power is not limited to any body, hence it can move locally body's not joined to it. So his answer, quoting St. Augustine, so frequently he's quoting St. Augustine or he's quoting sacred scripture in his answer, sometimes Aristotle. The angels use corporeal seed to produce certain effects, but they cannot do this, or sorry, I answer that 
No, that was on the contrary. He said contra. St. Augustine says that the angels use corporeal seed to produce certain effects, but they cannot do this without causing local movement. Therefore, bodies obey them in local motion. As Dionysius says, divine wisdom has joined the ends of the first to the principles of the second. Hence, it is clear that the inferior nature at its highest point is in conjunction with superior nature. Now, corporeal nature is below the spiritual nature, but among all corporeal movements, the most perfect is local motion, as the philosopher proves. The reason of this is that what is moved locally is not as such in potentiality to anything intrinsic, but only to something extrinsic, that is, to place. Therefore, the corporeal nature has a natural aptitude to be moved immediately by the spiritual nature as regards place. I think your brains are probably full by now. Hence, also the philosophers asserted that the supreme bodies are moved locally by the spiritual substances. Once we see that the soul moves the body first and chiefly by a local motion. Um, uh, part of what's going on in the background here isn't just St. Thomas addressing the question of whether or not angels can do things that have physical effect in the world on a person, but whether, but, but how angels uh, are affecting physical um, um, processes in the, in the universe. And part of, what's, part of what's part of this cosmology is that behind every natural reality is an angel as a, as a guardian, as it were, right? So um, every, uh, every city has a guardian angel, every town has a guardian angel, every entity has a guardian angel, every force of nature has a guardian angel that um, you know, maintains and supervises it, as it were. Um, and not just simply as someone who's um, a witness to it, but some, somehow um, involved in it. Beyond that, it'd be difficult to um, explain. But when, when, when we consider the operations of angels, we tend to be very limited in just thinking about archangels who send messages and um, guardian angels, you know, who protect us. Um, but there, maybe we think of angels who worship God in heaven. Um, but it's very much part of a classic view of the universe that ev there, everything in every place has a guardian angel, um, which is um, sadly missing from our view of the universe these days. Um, speaking of which, the names of the angels, right? Um, uh, what is, do you, can you think of names of angels that include um, this sound, F? Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, right. So, and it's funny, some people who, um, I know very, very little, but some people who know even less than I do get really carried away by, by asserting, look, the, the Christian church is hiding polytheism in its translation of the Old Testament. Look at all these angels whose, whose names mean that they're God, right? Michael, right? Gabriel, Raphael. We, but we know that Michael means who is like God, right? It's a question. And Gabriel means um, the strength of God, 
right? And Raphael means the remedy of God, or God heals, right? So their name includes, you know, God on purpose. It's not as though that they're um, divine and, and, um, and their divinity is being obscured by the translation of their names. Um, what's a name for, while we're um, back on the word L, what's a name for God that, like Gabriel, Michael, Raphael, ends in that sound, L? Emmanuel, right, which means God is with us, right? So that name for God is um, actually more familiar than you might have thought. L, right. Um, So when we think of the operations of angels, um, we um, we need to we need to imagine much more than just messengers and guardians and those worshiping God, but those who are um, all over the universe. Um, and contrary-wise, whether it was in the morning or the evening, I think it might have been in the evening yesterday that it came up that. When we consider how God allows freedom to be used to commit evil, it, um, it, it can be distressing um, to see how far God is willing to permit evil um, to have a long leash. What is it that um, results in God saying, no, you know, this will not get any worse. I prevent that from happening. Um, and so I mentioned that you know, we, we fail to consider if, if the fallen angels were not bound uh, and physical, you know, actually, not, again, it's tempting to use the word physical, but actually prevented from doing the harm that they desire to do. Because remember, they disobey God. It's not enough for God to just simply say, don't do that. But they actually have to be prevented from doing something. So they're, they're bound in a real way we would all just be puddles of blood, right? If they weren't bound from doing what they wanted to do. Um, thinking, so if, if you can imagine that, not for too long, because it's a disturbing thought, imagine twice as many angels doing all sorts of good things all throughout the created universe, mm. right? So there's a, um, um, there's a lot going on that we don't see. Sometimes we do see it because sometimes they assume bodies. Sometimes they have actual effect. Um, sometimes they, uh, the good angels are recognized and heeded and bring us closer to God. Sometimes the bad angels manage to get people to worship them and to you know, be led away from God. Um, but this single, you know, this, this single word, Elohim, touches on a lot of a lot of different realities.